Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to church. My name is Rowan, one of the pastors here. And uh, what a great passage. Come along to church today, excited to meet a dragon who likes eating babies at their birth. Um, what has this got to do with us? Who knows? But I want to ask, have you ever had one of those moments in life where you think you know what's going on? You think you've understood what's happening in front of your eyes until someone says something that changes the way you viewed the whole scenario. A number of years ago, we were away on holidays with our family in Wellington. We were staying at a friend's house and we'd gone for a drive around uh, the bottom of the, the kind of Wellington bit where the kind of fairy penguins are and you can get to the airport if you've been there. And we're driving around this kind of remote-ish road and we come across a car parked right across the middle of the road. And outside the car uh, is this massive dude ripping this little skinny, weedy dude out of the car. And I'm like, whoa, we stopped. Our kids are in the back going, what's that, Dad? (laughs) I don't know what's going to happen here, right? The guy rips him out and has got him on the floors, pushing his face into the the, the kind of road. And I'm thinking, man, I need to call the police, which is when the really big dude looks at me and says, call the police. I'm like, (laughs) What? That's what I'm about to do because you're smashing this guy. Anyway, the police come. Well, they're on the phone to me and they tell me to get out of the car. I'm like, I'm not getting out of the car. You come here and get out of the car. Anyway, they finally, they finally get there. It wasn't too long at all. And, and what had happened was the small guy had actually stolen uh, a camera from a guy who was doing an Anzac video of one of the last surviving Anzacs and had robbed it out of the big guy's car. The big guy had chased him, caught him, grabbed him and was holding him. And everything in our world at that time flipped because the big guy was the good guy. <laughs> As we look at the world around us, It looks at first glance like the natural world is all there is, doesn't it? The stuff that I can see and touch and feel and experience, that seems to be the reality of the world that we live in. Claims that there is a God or anything supernatural kind of, if we're honest, sometimes can feel a little far-fetched. And should someone talk about the devil... (laughs) Well, it's just a quaint kind of fairy tale idea that's the things of cartoons and comics. It's certainly not what is part of what is really real. For the majority of the world around us, we treat life like a tube of toothpaste, trying to get the most out of it that we can, right down to that last little bit before we then see it thrown out and it's all used up. And even for those of us who are Christians, the pressures and pleasures of the physical world around us seem to be the focus of our lives. And sure, we speak of enjoying God's creation and we look forward to some form of afterlife, but for many of us, our lives pretty much focus on this life here and the physical realities of the world around us. Philosophers call that naturalism, the idea that just the only thing that is real are the things that we can see and feel and experience. That's all that matters. It's no wonder that we find ourselves there because, well, the world that we live in, particularly the Western world, there's not much evidence of anything else, is there? So our jobs, our families, our hobbies, our relaxation, mixed with our security and our time and our energy, are all focused on what we can see, what we do. That's what we're about, isn't it? As we come to the book of Revelation and we hear of fiery red dragons with a taste for newborn infants, beasts with ten horns and seven heads, we kind of go, this is weird. (laughs) I don't know what is going on here, and I don't know what this has to do with me and the way I live my life. But today, I hope, God, by His Spirit, will flip through His Word what we see as real, so that we might think about what matters most. What the book of Revelation has to say to us is that these things that are going on here are are more significant than my career choice, than my bank balance, than my holidays and hobbies, than even physical life itself. The physical realm, as we see and feel it, is merely the stage upon which something far more profound is happening. It's not that the physical world doesn't matter. No, no, it, it does. How we live day to day matters immensely, but that's not because of what we see and feel in the world around us. What the book of Revelation paints as dragon and women and a child with an iron scepter. So don't you pray with me now that God, by His Spirit, would help us to see the world through His eyes now this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we need Your help today. 
So we come to your world, your word, and live in your world. The things of this world so often just shift our focus from what is really real. We ask today that you would profoundly, by your word and by your spirit, help us to see what is going on and, and keep shaping and changing the way that we live because of what you have to say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this next section, as you heard, gets even more crazy. <laughs> now, the story so far in the book of Revelation that we've been working through has been seven letters to seven churches who were real churches in kind of um, the ancient world that Jesus spoke to, but also had relevance for us as we heard what was going on in them. Some things encouraging, some things kind of challenging. We then got a window in chapters four and five into the throne room of God. We saw there was a scroll in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And then a slaughtered lamb walked up to the throne, took the scroll. And then we're expecting him to, to open it and see the plans and purposes of God un, unfold. We actually see two cycles of seven. There were seven seals that were opened up, talking about a whole heap of different things where uh, the sixth seal ended up being the, the last days, but there was more. And it wasn't kind of chronological in the way it was working through. And then we got to seven trumpets. And again, it was kind of like looking at the same events from a different angle, a different kind of video referee as we look through them all. And now we reach chapter 12, we kind of get an interlude before what we're going to see is another set of seven coming up uh, very, very soon. Seven bowls, which, surprise, surprise, will speak of the same events from a different angle again. And so in this moment now between the, the seven seals and then the seven trumpets, and then when the, we see the seven bowls, we get this picture language of what is going on and what is happening in the world around us. And you've got to remember, Revelation is speaking in picture language. It's painting a mosaic with ideas and images from throughout the whole Bible to give us a picture of what's going on and what will happen. And the key to understanding this section is to understand its characters. So we're just going to work through the passage, understanding each of the characters in this picture before us. There's a pregnant woman, there's her child, a fiery red dragon, and two beasts, one from the sea and one from the earth. You're like, great, that's what I came to church to do today, to understand these crazy characters. But let me say again, as we understand these, it might change the way we view everything. The first one is the dragon. That's point number one. You can write down, dragon. Now, the dragon's the easiest to understand of all the creatures in this story and all the characters that are here. He's described as a fiery red dragon with seven heads and seven crowns and then ten horns. He's meant to remind us of Daniel 7 and the four beasts we hear about there with ten horns who will devour the whole earth and crush it. Uh, we hear in chapter, 7 of, of verse 12, of chapter 12, verse 7, that... This dragon's got real power, so much so his tail swept and a third of the stars in the, in the sky got knocked to earth. This dragon has real power. And in, in this imagery, we have him standing in this grotesque position uh, where he's between the legs of this pregnant woman who's about to give birth to a child, waiting to eat the child. It's gross. You're like, ugh, this is disgusting. And then verse 9 tells us that this dragon, uh, Revelation 12 verse 9, this dragon that is the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. And he was thrown down from heaven to earth. The book of Revelation takes the worldview that says, this is it. There's nothing beyond what we see, hear and feel and it breaks it apart. And shows us that there is a powerful agent acting throughout all human history in our present existence as well, whose sole purpose is to deceive the whole world. Satan is at war and he's active. And to live a life that's the naturalistic life, the life where the only reality is what I can see, feel and touch and hear, is a massive victory for the deception of Satan. He doesn't want to raise his ugly head so people go, ha, I can see who you are, I can see where you're coming from. No, because his strongest play is to get you and I to believe he doesn't exist at all. Nothing going on here, just the natural world around us, everyone. Just live for the here and now, that's all there is. Just cruise on by into the open arms of Satan. We meet in this fiery beast, Satan, the great adversary, the deceiver from the beginning. The second character to understand in this section is the child. 
the child. It's point number two. Now, it's a little bit harder to work out who the child is, because the text of Revelation in this passage here doesn't directly tell us. I love it when Revelation tells us what the things are. You're like, phew, here I am. I can understand what's going on here. Uh, But the child, we we don't hear about it from this passage, but we do hear about this picture of a child uh, throughout the rest of the Bible. Revelation 12.5 describes the child like this. Uh, The woman gave birth to a son, a male, who is going to rule or shepherd nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, as you hear those words, to rule with an iron rod or rule with an iron scepter, it should bring to mind, if you've been a Bible reader for your life, some of the greatest songs of the people of God. Psalm number two, the second track on the greatest hits of Israel, right? It was all about God's king who would come. Listen to what Psalm 2 verse 7 says. I will declare the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son, today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now kings be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the son or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment, but all who take refuge in him are happy. Psalm 2 speaks of one who is coming, a son who will rule with an iron scepter. And you're like, is this child, that ruler, the the, the promised king who will come? Well, Revelation 19, a little bit further on, helps us clarify who he is. Look at Revelation 19.11. Then I saw heaven open and there was a white horse. And previously we'd seen a white horse, that was bad. This time... Not so bad. Well, for those who trust him, not so bad. (laughs) Its rider is called Faithful and True. A sharp sword came from his mouth so he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh. King of kings and Lord of lords. The child that we meet here is a child that Psalm 2 was looking forward to who would come to rule the world. And Revelation 19 tells us he's God the Son, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. It's no wonder that the dragon hates this child. What's unexpected is that Revelation 12 here, as we hear about the life of this child, does it so quickly. We're so used to the Bible spending so much time kind of talking about Jesus' life and what he's done and his words and his miracles and then how he's come and died in our place. And, and here, it just totally skips his whole life. It says that the child was born and then her child was caught up to God and to his throne. It goes from birth to ascension to the right hand of God. That's it, without even talking about anything else in the middle. And we know there's a lot in the middle, right? But the reason is John wants to show us what is going on in the world that we live in. See, at the birth of Jesus, history tells us there was an attempt to take his life. Do you remember it? Herod was the king and Herod was insane. And I mean with a capital I. The guy was crazy. One of the most insecure people to ever walk the planet. He was so insecure about his place as king He even killed some of his own family so they wouldn't kind of maybe take him out because he's a little bit worried about them. We hear about the story of what Herod did in Matthew 2, verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people or rule my people Israel. Again, there's that word, ruling, shepherding. The word shepherd is the same word translated in Revelation 12 as to rule with an iron scepter. The chief priests and the scribes knew what Micah had said in Micah 5 and were looking forward to a promised king who would rule and that promised king would come from Bethlehem. The wise men come looking for this promised king being born and they they tip off Mary and Joseph that Herod is trying to kill Jesus. So Mary and Joseph flee Bethlehem and look what Herod does. Matthew 2.16 Then Herod, when he realized that he'd been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. It's an incredibly horrific scene, isn't it? 
of an insecure king who does all that he can to protect, protect his kingship at massive cost to those who he's entrusted to serve. So we come back to Revelation 12 and the hostility of the dragon toward the child. We see what was actually going on in Matthew 2. That behind the physical events of Matthew 2 and the birth of Jesus, behind the human attempts on the life of Jesus, was a spiritual reality of a fiery red dragon standing, waiting to devour Jesus. Yes, there was a crazy king with all sorts of insecurities who wielded his power in horrific ways. That's the the physical and naturalistic world as we see it. Revelation 2 is saying behind all of that was a dragon. Deceiving and twisting the evil inclinations of a human king for his purposes. Satan hates Jesus. And he hates people following him. The insecurity of Herod is absolutely nothing compared to the frantic evil displayed by the dragon. To turn all of humanity away from seeing Jesus as he really is, the King of Kings. And while we look at the world around us and we experience all sorts of evils and wrongs and war, Revelation is saying these are just the symptoms of a greater battle going on. Don't think that what we see, hear and feel is all that there is. What is happening is being led by an ancient serpent from which every other evil on earth is derived. Don't be deceived at the moment that if we fix the unrest in Russia, if we solve the problem of poverty in Africa, if we remove the dictatorship from North Korea, or maybe just keep our heads down here in New Zealand and go with the flow and live as if this world is all there is, that the world will be a better place. It's exactly what Satan wants you and I to believe. But there's a spiritual reality going on behind all we see, hear and feel. But, Revelation 12 tells us in just such a simple line, that the child is caught up to God and his throne. No mention of a fight, no mention of any struggle. Just the quickest description of reality, Jesus won. And that's what Revelation 5 was all about. If we remember back to looking into that throne room and seeing the slaughtered lamb walk up to the throne... It said in Revelation 5.12 with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever. He is the one that is worshipped. He is the one that won. Satan did not win. It was Jesus' death on the cross that secured victory over this This horrible dragon. And I believe that at the cross was the moment that Satan was thrown from heaven. It talks about it here in this passage. And people have different views on when this happens. But I think it makes the most sense that the moment Satan was thrown from heaven was the moment that Jesus died on the cross and defeated death. Colossians 2.13 says, Jesus erased the certificate of death, debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us. He's taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. So at the cross, the rulers and authorities were disgraced and triumph happened at that point. In the Gospel of John, um, Jesus talks about his life being lifted up on the cross. And at that moment is the moment that the ruler of this world will be cast out. Look at John 12, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world, says Jesus. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. The moment Satan is pushed from his position of power in the heavenly realms is the moment Jesus dies on that throne, on that cross. And he's removed from being able to stop what God had planned to do in his Trinitarian goodness from the beginning of creation. And Satan's power is therefore seen only as being a deceiver. He was the accuser as well. And the way that you undermine the power of the accuser is to remove the power of the accusation. In what way was Satan's power to be an accuser? Well, he could stand and say, this one, sinner, this one, deserving of death, this one is mine. All of them have turned against you, God. But the moment Jesus died in our place, 
was the moment Satan thought he'd won, but the moment he lost his power to accuse. For Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Satan's threats, his power to accuse us, have been absorbed in Jesus. When he took that penalty for us so we could stand safe and secure in him. I heard a story a number of years ago of a little girl that was terrified of bees. She hated bees. Uh, She hated all the buzzing noise they made because that kind of said to her the threat of pain. Uh, She was highly allergic to their sting. One bee sting would be all that it took for her. And one day she was playing in the backyard and it seemed that all the worst of her fears came together and she saw and heard a bee. She screamed at the top of her voice and her dad came running. His dad scooped her up in his arms and turned his back on the bee. And the little girl at that moment felt her dad just go tense and then relax. When she stopped for a moment and got inside, she said, what happened to the bee? And he said, well, it stung me. And that means bees don't sting again. He looked her in the eyes and said, it's okay. Bees don't sting twice. As Jesus faced death for us, he says to the buzz of Satan's accusation, sinner, rebellious person who've turned your back on God, you can't be good enough for God. Jesus says, death stings once. And I took that sting when I said those three words, it is finished. At that moment, Satan went berserk. Revelation 12, 12 and 13 says this, Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great fury, because he knows his time is short. When the dragon saw he'd been thrown down to earth, he persecuted the woman who'd been given birth to the male child. He couldn't take the king, so now he was going for the king's people. And he is furious. He is using all the time that he's got left to do as much as he possibly can to bring down the woman and her children. That brings us to the next person, the woman. Who is she? Well, if the child is Jesus, surely the woman has to be who? Mary, right? Wrong. (laughs) No, it's not Mary. Listen to how she's described in 12 verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. I don't remember Mary having the clothing of the sun and the moon under her feet or a, a, a crown of 12 stars. But I do remember a dream one had once. Back in the book of Genesis, where this young man saw the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all 12 stars or 11 stars turned and bowed to his one star. His name was Joseph. They wrote a musical about him. But actually, he was one of the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And the stars in that picture were God's family, God's chosen people of the Old Testament. Then in verse 6 of of Revelation 12, we see that this woman flees into the wilderness. And we're like, what is this? Who is fleeing into the wilderness? And it sounds again like what happened to God's people after the Exodus. They came out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, and there's images throughout this passage of, of a sea enveloping the enemy and keeping people safe. And then they were in the wilderness. We're told in verse 14, then... The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness where she was nourished for a time, times and half a time. Okay, so now she's kind of given wings of an eagle. Is she really given wings? No. But it reminds us of Exodus 19. Do you remember Exodus 19, 14? When God had taken his people out through the Red Sea. He says this, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. See how the mosaic is being painted here in Revelation of parts of God's story and what he's done with God's people throughout time? It's using all sorts of familiar images to paint these pictures. This woman represents the Old Testament people of God, the one from whom Jesus comes. He's an Israelite, he's a Jew. But that's not all. We think, okay, this is the Old Testament people of God. I've got it. Jesus was a Jew, all good. Then we get to verse 17. So the dragon was furious with the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Who are the rest of her offspring? Those who keep the commands of God 
and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. So this picture of the woman and her children, well, the one child is Jesus, but then her children are now pictured here as all of God's people throughout all of time, that the Old Testament Jews who, who trusted the faithful and also those who trust in Jesus now, those New Testament believers who trust in Christ. It's this picture of the people of God throughout all time. That is the woman and the woman's children, plural. You've got to not kind of have a direct, everything's one-to-one. And then we see that she's in the wilderness for 1,260 days. Now, do you remember that number? We all know that 1,260 days is 42 months. We all know that, right? Because if you take 30 days in a month, that's what you get. And 42 months is what? Half of seven years, three and a half years, which is half of seven. Now, seven throughout the kind of pictures in Revelation and throughout the Bible is this picture of completeness. God creates the world and rest in seven days and it's done. Uh, We see here that seven is this idea of fullness. There's seven scrolls, or seven seals, there's seven trumpets, there's seven bowls. Seven is this picture of God in his completeness. And, and what it's saying here is that this woman will be in the wilderness for half of seven. So in other words, just a, a time that's not all of time, it's limited. It's not going to go on forever. And so the woman and her children of Revelation 12 and 13 is us. It's those who trust in Jesus. And what Revelation is saying is that the the dragon, having been cast out of heaven about being able to do anything about Jesus and who he is, is enraged and has turned in war against you. It's as if there's a scope in the sight of this dragon and it's got crosshairs and a green laser focus and there's a dot on every single one of our heads. He has you and me in his sights. He does everything he possibly can with the time that he has to move our eyes from what is really going on, to lull us into a reality where we walk into his arms and reject the true and living God. I hope this morning you're hearing the the warning of the reality Revelation is putting before us today. Satan wants you and he wants you bad. He's seeking to destroy you and me right now. If I'm honest, I don't live my life that way. I don't think that he's trying to pull me aside at every moment, that he's trying to deceive me by making me think about really what matters is just the here and now rather than it being an eternal perspective. And so we need to come back and hear what is going on and see the reality. And it's flipping what's happening here. What we see and feel and hear on this level of physical universe is true, yes. But it's just the stage being played out of God's eternal purpose of bringing people to himself and Satan trying to do everything he can to move you and me away from that. Those moments that we feel like we we just don't want to open our Bible and read it. It's not just laziness going on for us. It is that. But it's us listening to the deception of Satan. Ah, not today. I'm too busy. Satan says, you bet you are. (laughs) That's how I've kind of helped you to run your life. When we can't be bothered turning up to church on time or turning up at all. Yeah, sure, there's a whole heap of things that are going on. I feel like a massive hypocrite. I came late today, right? But we're being led by the hand of Satan. To not turn up at church, to not come and encourage his people, that's exactly what Satan wants. To not go to our small groups, connect groups, to not call up one another, to not pray for one another. We're being led by the hand of Satan. It is not just a physical reality. Now, he doesn't reach in and overpower us so that we have to do what he says. He just shows us options. Stay at home. Watch it on live stream. For those that are watching live stream, well done for watching. Come back. We miss you. We need you. I'm not talking about when we're sick or those couple of weeks that go past when we go on holidays. I'm talking about that apathy we feel of, oh, just, it's just easier to stay at home. It's just easier to kind of not be as planned and rock up late and miss the first bit of encouragement and singing to one another. Like, we're shockers, and myself, hypocrite today, I'm late. We come so late. So often guys get up to, to sing and, and to encourage one another, and half of us aren't here. And we're like, yeah, I've had a busy week. And for me, yep, I was trying to finish this stuff off. It's complicated, you know. And there's all these things that are kind of going on. And Satan's going, yeah, exactly. You just believe that. 
When we think that this life is just ordinary. You know, and sometimes we get the excitement of, we hear about someone who's moved from death to life, who's put their trust in Jesus. We go, oh, that's kind of an added bonus to the Christian life, because the Christian life's about me just having the best life I can now and, and knowing God and enjoying His creation. Satan says, yes, that's it. That's all that it is. Keep living that, enjoying God's creation life. Don't think about the others that are going to hell. Don't worry about them. Get excited about His creation. Get excited about the joys that you feel, the things that you know, but don't put them into practice. And we go, oh, that's a little bit strong or a little bit radical. The greatest miracle. What this whole universe is about is people moving from death to life. The reality that the certificate of death, the accusations of Satan have been nailed to the cross and been said, paid in full, that our, our debt has been paid. Oh, that news should change the way we live, shouldn't it? And what we speak of and how we share that news with others. And if you're here today, you've not seen how great it is to know that we can spend an eternity with God. I want to encourage you. This is amazing. This is what life is about. Someone coming to know Jesus is not an added bonus on the sides of, of, of kind of the Christian life. It's what we are about. Seeing people come to know Christ and growing in Christ. Do you know, this year alone, 18 people across our EV campuses have become Christians, have moved from death to life. That's awesome. That's, I know, right? It's exciting. It's something we should be praising God for. Nothing to do with us, but Him working through us. Over the last month, 630 people have come along to an EV service. That doesn't make them a Christian at all. But they've come along to be encouraged and to encourage, to build one another up. Satan sometimes says, oh, you just said numbers. Don't talk about numbers. We don't want to be the church that talks about numbers. And so we don't care about people because every number is a person. Can you imagine the bank saying to you, you don't, don't care about numbers. Oh, we'll hold your money. You just give it to us. You don't count it. We won't count it. And then when you want it back, we'll give it back to you. It's fine. We go, no, I want to know. This matters. It matters how we live our lives and what we live for. And seeing real people that we'll spend an eternity together with come to know Jesus. Well, it's a big fat stare down the barrel of Satan saying, you've lost. Because at the cross, Jesus won. Where else do you experience the same seductiveness of Satan that Herod felt when he gave in to his own evil desires? Siding with the side of Satan. Hear the warning here. Satan is living and active in our world and he loves to move us, to help us think that it's all about just the here and now. What life is about is recognizing we're at war and that Jesus has won and that we have the antidote to death, the one who took the sting of death for us, that we can have life forever. I got to talk to my nan this week, which is pretty special. She's 92. She's my last living uh, grandparent. And she was telling me just all the people that are dying around her. And I looked at her and I said, but nan, if, if you keep trusting in Jesus, if you keep trusting in him, you know that life lasts forever, don't you? She's like, yeah, I do. I do. My question is, do you? Do you know that joy? Well, how do we endure while Satan tries to take us out? Revelation talks of three weapons. They come in verse 11 of chapter 12. They conquered him, Revelation says, by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. How do we live while Satan is trying to take us out? We live by the blood of the Lamb. As he says, look at what you've done. You've gone too far. You say, Jesus paid it all. He took his death for me. We look to the throne room of God and see a slaughtered lamb walk up to him and take the scroll out of his right hand and say, because of what Jesus did, you've got nothing on me, Satan. You are booted out from heaven. No longer can you say to God, he's mine, she's mine. He did this, she did that. Because Jesus took it all. How are you going at remembering that great reality of the blood of the lamb who died for us and washed us clean? Secondly, the testimony 
of those who trust Jesus. He's not just talking about them telling their story of what God has done in their life. He's talking about the testimony of the gospel, the word of God. In Ephesians 6, when Paul's talking about what it is to live in a world, in a a spiritual world where Satan's trying to take us out, he has one offensive weapon, one attack weapon, and it is the word of God. We keep needing to come back to God's word so we might hear him and he might shape and mold us. We're listening to enough of what Satan says in the world around us. He's screaming from every billboard, just do this and life will be better. Worship me here. Have this thing. Do that thing. And we shut the way God speaks. And Satan says, welcome home. (laughs) The blood of a lamb, the testimony of the gospel, and the attitude of martyrs is how we conquer. Recognizing what Jesus has done, there's a willingness to stand for Jesus no matter what the cost. To say to him, you can have it all. I will serve you no matter what the cost. And we've seen some of that amongst us. People standing up for the, for the sake of, of the gospel, speaking of Jesus in their workplace. People taking great sacrifices for a gospel training hub on the shore. Like That is so encouraging. We're not going to get anything here and now out of that. Lots of us here aren't even going to experience the joys of that. But people have given. But I do wonder... Often we feel like, yes, I'm going to serve you with my all. I'll be willing to die for you. But I don't want to die for my ambition in this world here and now. I really want to see this thing happen here and now. I really want to get to this place in my career. And there's nothing wrong with getting to good places in your career and using the way that God has given you skills and gifts to to bless the world around you. But we need to be willing to die for it all. You can have everything, Jesus. I'm going to serve you in every area of life. Except my sex life. Except for what I do in my mind as I read those novels. Or, or perhaps the way I, I express my sexuality. That's off limits to you. No, we are to willingly die for Christ. To serve him. Not for our comfort. Not for our popularity. Do you see? When you understand what's going on and how much Satan is trying to pull you aside. Jesus is saying, put me first. I've died for you. I've taken the penalty that you deserve. Live for me. Come and hear my word. Listen, let it shape and mold you. Let that guide the way that you live. Be people who keep speaking the word of God to one another and encouraging one another. And when you see who I am and what I've done, why would you not want to live your life for me and say no to everything else that wants to step into that first place? Keep Killing sin. As you see it spring up, say, I serve Jesus. No. Tell someone, pray about it. Recognize Jesus has forgiven it. And then keep seeking to to serve him. That relationship that steps in that isn't an appropriate relationship, say no. That extra time to to, to serve your career or your, your popularity or your reputation, say no. That is how we conquer when Satan has us in his crosshairs. Well, finally, then we arrive at the two beasts and then a great number that everyone knows what's about. Sarcasm. The first beast is from the sea and the second beast is from the earth. And what John's doing here is showing us a kind of parody of God. Here is a picture of a false God. If you want a heading for the beasts, you could put the ungodly trinity. The dragon and the two beasts kind of act in this way of kind of like God, but not fully God. In the same way that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, so that there is dragon, beast, and beast. Look at Revelation 13.1. Let's read through it. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. On its horns were ten crowns, and on its heads were blasphemous names. Now, previously, the, the dragon had the crowns on its heads, and the horns are a symbol for power. Here, this beast loves power. Because the crowns are on the horns, not on the heads. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. The dragon gave the beast his power, his throne and great authority. One of its heads appeared to be fatally wounded. But its fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. What's happening here? Well, now we're kind of seeing the way that Satan does deceive. We've seen how to conquer. And now we're kind of seeing in chapter 13 the way that Satan is pulling us away from him. 
And the first one is with this kind of authoritative, power-hungry leader of a beast. And what's interesting is, it's got all the marks of the vision of Daniel 7. Go back and have a read of Daniel 7. You're like, oh, look, here's the mosaic being put together, the one who would come and crush the earth. All the marks of that. But what's interesting now is that it has a fatal wound. Now, a fatal wound is a wound that's fatal. Thanks, Rowan. Needed to come to church today to learn that. But you can't heal a fatal wound. It's fatal. You're dead, right? So this weird picture that imagery can do that we can't do. What is this picture of a fatal wound? Now, I remember someone else who was wounded fatally, Jesus. And he was raised. So he, he was healed and was placed in the, the position of all authority and power. Here we have Satan trying to mimic God. This picture of a fatal wound that was healed. But in what way is, is Satan fatally wounded but healed? Well, he's trying to replicate God. He's trying to replace God. But he can't do what Jesus did. He can't come back to life and live forever. So what he does is he keeps sending some form of ruler or authority to earth again and again and again. Some form of anti-Christ authority. That's the key thing to remember. Beast number one, anti-Christ authority. Anti-Christ authority. There's lots of discussion on who this beast number one is. The reformers thought it was the Pope. I thought everything that was wrong was the Pope. Um, But they were like, definitely the Pope. Early church talked about Nero as one of its leaders, and then you can, you can take the, the emperors, the first seven emperors, and you can put their names together and come up with kind of things to say, oh, it's all of them, but you've got to exclude some of the others. It kind of goes round and around. Who, who is this great antichrist authority? Well, I think the picture of the fatal wound that keeps getting healed is a picture of saying that in the three and a half years we exist, in other words, for a time, who knows how long that is, for a time that Satan is reigning on earth, these beasts, these antichrist authorities will stand up and, and lead people and do all sorts of evil, like, like Hitler, like Rome, like all the, the wrongs of the world around us. They'll keep coming back and coming back, sometimes in worse forms than others. The world we live in says, get rid of the evil leaders and the world will be a better place. Remove the dictatorship in North Korea. Uh, get, get good leaders in, in America so that they'll be leading well and In Britain, let's try and get the best leaders that we can and then we'll have a great government and we'll all hold hands and the world will work perfectly and we won't need God. We're so naive. I mean, really? Think we haven't tried that before? Look look at human history. You remove one government, what makes you think that the results will be peace and order? It hasn't worked like that in the past. In 1 John 2, John says this, Children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. By this we know it's the last hour. John is saying in the last days, in the three and a half years that we're in now, that we've been in since Jesus' um, resurrection and ascension, that many Antichrist leaders have come into the world and they are Satan's mouthpiece. He's using them like he did with Herod to, to lead us astray and do all sorts of wrong. Why is John telling us this? So that we can remove them and put a better one in? No. Look at 13 verse 10, and this is really important. Revelation 13.10 says, This calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. See, God's plan is not to remove them here and now, not until Jesus comes back and he puts that one true king in. We're not to seek government overthrow. Governments are generally good, Romans 13 tells us, and put in place for our good But Satan loves pulling them aside and they're always going to be in the world doing Satan's work in some way, shape or form until Jesus comes back. So what ought we to do? Endure. Look to the blood of the Lamb, the testimony of the Word of God and live where you're happy to die for Jesus. That's what he's saying. Hold on. Don't give up. Don't think, oh, it's over. It's too much. Satan's won. He has not. God is in control. Keep going. But then we hear of the second beast, the beast from the earth. Let's read Revelation 13, verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. 
It also performs great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in front of people. It deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs it's permitted to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was permitted to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could speak and cause whoever would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And it makes everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark and the beast's name or the number of its name. What's going on there? <laughs> well, the thing that John is showing us is this second beast that works in this unholy trinity with the dragon is basically the beast's PR agent. Right? It looks like a lamb. Everyone's like, this is good. This is a good way. It's got the two horns like a lamb. Everyone's like, oh, how cute. But it speaks with the voice of the dragon and the beast. The beast PR agent is basically the, the front man of Satan's work on earth. Trying to get us into ideas and philosophies that are going to deceive us and help us to reject Jesus. He's not really the, the antichrist authority like that first one. The second beast is the antichrist ideology. If you want to write that down, Antichrist ideology. It's the ways of thinking that we have that seem good to us. You know, that, that we, we think about, we want to just love all people. And if someone loves someone, it doesn't matter whether they're male or male or female or female. It's okay. It's, it, it's, it's just part of love. And God is love and we need to be loving. There's an ideology that steps in that looks like a lamb. It looks loving. But it's the word of the beast. That's actually turning against what God's word says. The idea that today, that the physical world is all there is. So you need to live for the here and now. You need to wring the most out of that tube of toothpaste called life so that I can get the most out of it. Sounds right. God has given us this world to enjoy. Live in it. It sounds like the words of a, of a, a nice fluffy lamb. Enjoy life. Just live to enjoy what God has given you. But if that's all we do, that's the word of Satan. Any idea or ideology that draws us away from Jesus is the mark of the beast's PR agent, the second beast. And what John says is that beast, Satan himself, he's out to mark everyone for himself. He's out to mark us as people who are his. He wants to say, you're mine, and put that brand on us. He wants us to exhibit the realities that we're living for him and not for Jesus. And his mark, says John, is 666, the mark of the beast. Everyone's like, all right, now we're here. What does this mean? I'll give you one more minute, Rowan, and then that's it. <laughs> There's all sorts of ideas what this 666 means. It can be um, where you, you have letters equal numbers, and kind of um, a whole gematria, it's called, where you, know, you go through and you say what number of the alphabet your, your name is, and you can get a number out of it. Um, apparently, there was, some, um, there was some graffiti in the first kind of century that said... Um, uh, my girl is 545. Five. You're like, yeah, that, that was her number. Problem is, you could get to those numbers many different ways. So you can get to 666 by um, looking at the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in the Hebrew translation of the word Nero and get to 666. So it could be Nero. Uh, but the question is, why would you use the Hebrew? Like Nero's Greek, Roman. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense at all. Other um, people kind of hear this and like, I know what this is. This is getting microchipped, 100%. Like, it, it's that, or it's 5G towers, they're trying to track us. Um, it could even be COVID vaccine, that's in us, uh, that's the mark of the beast. There's a whole heap of different ideas that people throw in that we've got to think through, take seriously. But 666 probably just means one less than God. In this unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the beast, that are trying to mimic the true and living God and say, worship me, I am like him, come and live this way. Don't serve him, serve me. He knows his time is limited. He's just not quite God, is he? God, in his view of perfection, 777. He creates the world in seven days. Seven is this idea of fullness and completeness that we, we keep seeing. And, you know, this not seven times, but 77 times, Jesus says, you should forgive. It's, it's more and more. It's complete is the picture the Bible keeps holding out. God is perfect. His mark is just less than perfect, less than perfect, less than perfect. Or fail, fail, fail. Every time we give in to Satan's deception, every time we drift into the ways of this world, we display the marks of the beast. 
We're not branded with some sign and that's it, we're sealed. We're marked as a slave, like a slave is marked out. We become more and more a slave to Satan. We're marked out in worship, that we want to worship the God who is 666 rather than the God who is 777. Each time we give in, we worship someone other than Jesus. We're becoming more and more like the one that we worship. But in Revelation chapter 7, all of God's people have a mark on them. The beast here wants to mark out all people on earth for himself. But we see in Revelation 7 that there is a mark that God gives to his people. And it's this. Look with me. Revelation 7, 13. And it's a picture of the end here. Then one of the elders asked me, who are these people in white robes and where do they come from? He said to him, sir, you know. Then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to the springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. As you live in a world that wants to say, this physical reality is all that there is. Look to what God is saying to us today. Satan is trying to take you and me out. He's trying to mark us as his own so that we might live for him. But as we look to the blood of the lamb, the one who died for us, who took the sting of death and sins sting away from us so that we could stand forgiven, we can have our robes washed white with the blood of the lamb. We can come to the word of God and hear what God says and listen to him, not the lies of the world around us, to see what is going on in our world and be be ready and equipped for what Satan is trying to do. And then we can be ready to stand to die for the reality that Jesus is our king. What can Satan take from us if we're trusting in Jesus? We'll have a life that does not end. We'll be forgiven for all of our sins and we'll get to spend an eternity with him, washed with the blood of the Lamb. Friends, don't live for the here and now. Live for the reality of what is really going on that God is bringing people to himself, and that is what matters. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to this picture you have shown us, we are so thankful. We're so thankful that you've shown us the reality of the world around us, that we might see what is really going on. We're so thankful that you have called us to be able to recognize that Satan is trying to pull us aside. And we ask today that you would help us to live for Jesus as our King. You'd help us to see the great wonder of of Jesus' death in our place and his disarming of Satan. Let us not underestimate Satan's power. Show us where we are sliding into his arms rather than yours. Help us to be people that live for you, that trust your word and are willing to die so that we might stand with you forever. Pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.